0: Okay, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Heather Fasnat. I'm actually re-recording my credo session titled, What's Up with God in the Old Testament? We could also call it um, a brief overview of salvation history. Um, so just a little bit of backstory about me. Um, I grew up in Lafayette. I went to school at UL. It's very involved in the ministry at Our Lady of Wisdom. So it's a great honor to be able to give you this presentation today. Um, I went on to get my master's in biblical theology and now I am a theology teacher at Turlings High School in Lafayette. Um, So like I said, it's a great honor and a great joy to be able to talk about something so special to my heart Um, I have a very particular love for the Old Testament, and so that's something I'm going to get to share with you today. So, this talk is called, What's Up with God in the Old Testament? Um, A question I receive a lot from friends and from students is, why does God seem so different in the Old Testament? A question I also get a lot from students in the same line of thinking, but worse, is, What's up with the God of the Old Testament? And that puts um, this division between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And I want to show you um, that it's the same God. We, as Catholic Christians, believe in one God. Um, One God who consistently shows his love for humanity and his plan for humanity laid out in all of Scripture as a whole both the Old and the New Testaments. Um, some other things that people bring up would be, you know, what's the deal with the wrath of God or what's going on um, in the battles of the conquest of Canaan, the promised land? Um, you know, what is divine condescension? What does it mean that God kind of condescends himself down to the level of the Israelites? Um, and why does there seem to be a focus on God's justice in the Old Testament but no real focus on God's mercy and so I'm going to touch on some of these subjects today Um, so that's the first question I want to answer why does God seem so different in the Old Testament and I hope that I can kind of illuminate that for you throughout my presentation another question I will hopefully answer for you is why do we even need the Old Testament in light of Jesus. That's something um, I've gotten a lot since I've started leading Bible studies, even in college. I would um, find out some cool connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I had friends who um, weren't impressed. They just said, oh, well, I, I don't really care about that kind of stuff. All I need is Jesus. And I always had an issue with that. But until I went to get my master's, that's not something I fully understood. A third question I'll hopefully answer is, how should we read the Old Testament? And then the final question I'll answer is, how can we pray with the Old Testament? So, like I said, number one, why does God seem so different in the Old Testament? That's going to kind of hopefully be answered for you throughout my presentation as we go through Salvation History. The second question, why do we even need God? Uh, I mean, why do we even need the Old Testament in light of Jesus? Um, This is not a question that is just coming up today. Um, Actually, in the early church, there was a guy named Martian, and he got a number of bishops on his side, and basically he promoted that the Old Testament should be thrown out in light of Jesus. And the early church... Um, combated this belief as heresy. And so I'm going to read a few quotes from the Catechism in the Catholic Church about the importance of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is an indispensable, it means you cannot throw it away, indispensable part of Scripture. Its books are divinely inspired and retain a permanent value, for the Old Covenant has never been revoked. The Catechism goes on to say, that the economy of the Old Testament was deliberately so oriented that it should prepare for and declare in prophecy the coming of Christ, redeemer of all men. So what does that mean? The Old Testament is pointed to, it's deliberately aimed at declaring in prophecy the coming of Christ. It prepares us for the coming of Christ. Goes on to say, even though they contain matters imperfect and provisional. And if you've been listening to Father Sibley's Credo Talks, he's mentioned things that have been imperfect and provisional. Um, The books of the Old Testament bear witness to the whole divine pedagogy of God's saving love. These writings are a storehouse of sublime teaching on God and of sound wisdom on human life, as well as a wonderful treasury of prayers. In them too, the mystery of our salvation is present in a hidden way so the catechism is very clear and the church has been very clear since even the time of Martian the Old Testament retains a permanent value because it prepares us for the coming of Christ I tell my students all the time that if you don't know the Old Testament then you can't understand the things that Jesus is saying and doing And so that leads me to the next question of how should we read the Old Testament? If it's valuable, if it's going to teach us about God's love, if we're going to see how God was preparing in prophecy um, and preparing the hearts of his people for the coming of Christ, we need to know how to read the Old Testament well. And so um, today I want you to know that the idea of a covenant, Covenants are key for us to understand what God is doing um, throughout human history and throughout the Old Testament. So we hear words like Old Testament and New Testament, but the word Testament comes from the Latin word testamentum, which is basically the translation of the word covenant. So you could say I'm reading the Old Testament And that means you're reading about the old covenant if you say i'm reading the new testament that means you're reading about the new covenant and so what is a covenant you kind of boil down the idea of a covenant to a sacred family bond that's sealed by an oath and covenants have covenant mediators this is someone that god works with as a representative of a group of people um, with whom the covenant was made. And so throughout salvation history, we see six major covenants, five in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. These would be the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. Each covenant has a sign And each covenant forms a family Um, and we're gonna talk about that a little bit more that's going to be illustrated clearly to you later there are also blessings and conditions that come along with the covenant blessings for keeping the covenant and um, certain conditions um, when the covenant is broken Um, curses would be another way to talk about that curses that come from breaking the covenant and these covenants take place typically on a mountain and so i'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about creation because father Sibley, um you know spoke about it so beautifully in an earlier credo session but i will kind of highlight some ideas about the adamic covenant so we believe that god made a covenant with all of creation Adam as that covenant mediator and so Adam has five roles within his covenant Um, first role being that Adam is a priest we see that Adam is told to till and keep the garden Uh, the Hebrew words avada and shamar are only used together again Um, in a description of the priest's role, or the priest's job, ministering in the temple. So we see Adam as a priest. We see Adam as a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God. He names the animals. Adam is given dominion over creation. Who has dominion but a king? So Adam is a priest, a prophet, a king. It says that Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. And while I talk to my students about how this language sounds very you know, beautiful and we, we kind of throw these words around a lot, if you look within the biblical narrative itself, um, the author of Genesis defines what it means to be in the image and likeness of God or in the image and likeness of someone. Later on in Genesis chapter 5, we see that Adam has a son. And he is made in his image, born after his likeness. So, the words image and likeness actually imply a father son relationship. So, Adam is a priest, a prophet, a king, and a son of God. Adam's final role is that he's a bridegroom. And we know this in his marriage to Eve your bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. These are covenantal phrases. So we see Adam living in the covenant with God, creation as the sign of this covenant. Actually, um, if you look in the narrative, Genesis 1, there are seven days of creation. And biblical scholars have pointed out that seven is a covenantal number. In Hebrew, to make a covenant with someone, you seven yourself. Now that sounds like funny language to us, but the biblical narrative is giving us this idea this spiritual meaning about this covenant that God makes with creation and so Adam is living in this covenant but of course we know about the fall and I'm not going to spend too much time on the fall but I will talk about um, the curse of the fall um, and the idea of original sin and so um, Cardinal Ratzinger defines original sin as damaged relationship. He says that sin is relational. No one sins alone. It always affects others, and it is a rupture that we are all born into. It impairs our ability to love God and love one another. So original sin is damaged relationship. And from Adam forward, humanity is born into a world that experiences ruptured relationship and so this obviously is bad news but in the biblical narrative itself we see the first sign of God's plan for humanity and we call this the proto evangelium proto first evangelium gospel so the first gospel the first good news that God is going to do something about this broken covenant about this ruptured relationship about this sin Um, in Genesis 3.15 God is speaking to the serpent which we understand to be Satan and he says that a descendant of the woman in the immediate context right, the woman is Eve descendant of the woman will crush the head of the serpent while the serpent strikes at his heel so we have this first message of some savior to come some descendant of eve that will ultimately crush the head of satan so we obviously as christians um, can see that jesus is the fulfillment of this but we have a long way to go um, in scripture before we get there i would also like to note something um, that i found to be very beautiful We see the consequences of sin is death. Death comes. And something in particular dies in the place of Adam and Eve. We know this because it says that they realize that they're naked, they experience shame, they sew fig leaves together and they cover themselves. Fig leaves, probably not suitable clothes. So we see that God gives them garments of skins to wear. Well, in order for them to have skins to wear, that means some animal must have died in order to bring about um, those garments. And in the Jewish tradition, that animal was believed to be a lamb. And so we see right away in the beginning of scripture, the consequence of sin is death. But a lamb, maybe, potentially a lamb, right? Some animal serves as a substitute. Something takes the place of Adam and Eve. Something provided by God takes the place of Adam and Eve. And so if it is a lamb, there's obviously a lot of beautiful imagery that we can contemplate on. So moving forward, God is going to make another covenant, And that is the covenant with Noah. And so when you read the narrative of the flood, you can see this kind of new creation imagery. You know, the Holy Spirit moving over the waters. Um, The water, you know, covering the earth is almost a return to the earth being formless and void. You recognize that language from Genesis chapter one. And so we see this new creation Noah is seen as a new Adam. And the covenant sign is the rainbow. And the form of the covenant is you know, Noah and his family. God has made a covenant with a family. And then we read about this fall of Noah. I could go into a lot more detail if I had time about the similarities between the fall of Adam and the fall of Noah. But unfortunately, you know, we don't have a whole semester to go into these things. Um, But Genesis 11 is going to take us into the next covenant. So we see the fall of Noah um, and then the Tower of Babel where there's this collective sin of pride um, and God ends up making a covenant with one particular figure that's Abram. So Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham. Um, And one of the most important chapters in all of scripture for us um, understanding Christ would be Genesis chapter 12. God calls out to Abram and he gives him three promises. So he promises Abram that he will make of him a great Nation, he will give him a great name, and through the descendants of Abraham, all people, all nations of the earth will find blessing through Abraham's descendant. So there's this idea of universal blessing. So let's kind of um, dissect these a little bit. So God will make a great nation of Abram well if you know anything about scripture there is a bit of a problem because a great nation implies two things to have a great nation you need people and you need land and abram is um, up there in age abram is an old man and his wife um, has been barren and they do not have one child much less many descendants So God is going to have to do big things to bring about the fulfillment of this promise. And the other promises, promise of a great name, great name in the ancient world implied royalty. Essentially, that means that God is promising that kings will descend from Abram. That hinges on Abram having a descendant. And then obviously that promise of universal blessing requires... That Abram actually has to have a descendant that all the world will find blessing in. So each of these promises is brought up to the level of a covenant. And so um, there's, you know, this oath and oath sign attached to each of these things. I'm going to focus kind of particularly on Genesis chapter 22, which... Um, restates god's promise that he is going to make of him a great nation and at this point isaac has been born abraham's son isaac um it reaffirms that kings will come through the line of isaac okay great um abraham can see maybe this um you know, all coming together through Isaac's line. Um, But in Genesis 22, something interesting happens. God calls out to Abram, and God wants Abram, Abraham actually at this point, to sacrifice his son as um, a burnt offering. And so this is one of the chapters in scripture that people look at and they question You know, is this really what God wants? This seems so different than the God we read about in the New Testament. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about how we're called to read Genesis chapter 22, where God seems to be asking Abraham to sacrifice his only beloved son, Isaac. So scholars take different views. Um, Some people say that, well, God is testing Abraham Abraham is obedient, and he's rewarded for that, and that is what it is. Um, Some people read this as actually um, a message against uh, or command against child sacrifice because the angel stops Abraham from killing his son um, on Mount Moriah because the Canaanite people, um, who are the enemies of the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, they practice child sacrifice. So this is a clear command that the God of Abraham does not desire this type of sacrifice and worship. Um, Some scholars read this as Abraham being, yes, obedient to God, but also recognizing that if God is going to be faithful to his promises, God has to do something miraculous if Isaac is going to truly be sacrificed. I say that because I already explained to you that God's promises hinge on Abraham actually having a descendant in Isaac. So, some people believe that it's possible that Abraham would have expected God to allow Isaac to be killed but have him resurrect, which is really interesting, obviously, in light of Christ. And so, people take different views. I really want us to take a typological reading of this text. Father Sibley mentioned this um, idea typology to you before, um, but just in case you aren't familiar with it, um, the study of types is basically the idea that there are people and places and events in scripture that kind of foreshadow or prefigure things to come. So if we are reading the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac on Mount Moriah typologically, there are a few things that we can look at. And so first, if we're going to say that Isaac is a type, we are going to look at how old is Isaac? Um, when I was growing up, any um, you know Bible movie typically had Isaac as a small child, a six-year-old boy being led up the mountain by his you know one hundred something-year-old dad, and it was just this sad story. But if you read in the Jewish and Christian tradition, Isaac is always seen to be a young man. And the story gives us some hints at this because Isaac carries up the wood of the sacrifice. Now, I don't know much about um, burning animals whole, but if the idea was that Abraham and Isaac were going to offer a whole burnt offering on top of Mount Moriah, Seems like that would require a large amount of wood to burn for the sacrifice. So I don't think that any normal six-year-old could carry that much wood up the mountain. So we have this idea that Isaac is a strong young man walking up the mountain with his father. So Isaac's young, carrying the wood of his own sacrifice up Mount Moriah okay it's interesting so if Isaac is strong enough to carry the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain we can also assume that Isaac is strong enough to resist his father tying him down I don't know about you but if my father brought me up to the mountain and I realized that I was the sacrifice, I would probably fight back. So what does this imply? It seems like Isaac recognizes what is going on and is being obedient to his father and is willfully sacrificing himself. So we have a young man carrying the wood of his own sacrifice up the mountain. He's going to be sacrificed by his father, willingly, in obedience. Interesting. I hope you know where I'm going with this. But, if we need some more clues at maybe where I'm going, in the story we know that the angel stops Abraham from sacrificing his son, and something is sacrificed in his place. And that is a ram. And the ram is found with his head caught in a thicket. A thicket is a thorn bush. So there's a ram with his head crowned in thorns. And he dies on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. So, obviously, I'm thinking of Isaac as a type of Christ. Both are men carrying up the wood of their own sacrifice up a mountain they are being sacrificed by their father they're willfully being obedient to their father and um there's the head you know crowned in thorns um jesus is you know of course, described as the sacrificial lamb. Um, It's the sacrifice ram in the story of Abraham and Isaac. So when we read the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, in light of Christ, you know, there's this deeper meaning that comes out that um, we are waiting for the true father, to sacrifice his son um, on a mountain in order to bring about um, this universal blessing. Because remember, that's the third promise to Abraham that he will make of him a great nation. um, He will make of him a great name. Kings will come from his line. And that through one of his descendants, all the world will find blessing. And we know as Christians, obviously, that that promise is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, One last little tidbit, actually two last little tidbits. Um, The mountain, Mount Moriah, um, later on we know um, is named Mount Zion. And we read in, I believe it's 1 Chronicles, it could be 2 Chronicles, I don't have it in front of me, that David desires to build the temple on the spot where Isaac was almost sacrificed. And that's interesting to us because Jesus is crucified right outside of the temple. So not only are these there are all these connections about carrying the wood of the sacrifice, you know, the crown of thorns, um, the obedience to being sacrificed by the Father, Isaac and Jesus are almost sacrificed in the same place. Um, And then also there's this beautiful line in Genesis 22 when Isaac turns to his father and says, where is the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham responds, God will provide himself the lamb. And scholars actually argue what's the best translation of this or what's the best understanding of this because you can take that in two ways. God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself as the lamb, or we can read God will provide the lamb himself, right? God will be the one to provide the lamb. Obviously, either way, we can read it and, you know, look forward to Jesus as that sacrificial lamb. But how beautiful if the correct understanding is that God will provide himself as the lamb. Okay, so um, the covenant with Abraham kind of as a sum up, right? We have these different theories, this typological reading, but the sign of the covenant with Abraham is circumcision, right? It's this visible sign of being in the covenantal family of the descendants of Abraham. And so, We know that the descendants of Abraham, after a series of events, lots of drama amongst the um, 12 sons of Jacob, uh, they end up in Egypt. And we know that while Joseph enjoyed a good relationship with the Pharaoh, um, as time goes on, the Israelites settle and stay in Egypt and Pharaohs don't know the Israelites. They are just a group of people living in their land and they're starting to multiply and grow, and they seem to be a political threat to the Egyptians. And so we see after about 400 years of the Israelites staying in Egypt, they have been enslaved, and Moses is going to come on to the scene as our next covenant mediator. And so we know that Moses has God appeared to him in the burning bush. This beautiful narrative about God revealing his name, Yahweh, I am, which as an aside is really a beautiful thing when we think about our philosophical understanding of God. I am who I am. God as being itself. But that's a nerdy conversation for maybe another day but something interesting um, God refers to Israel as his firstborn son so he asks Moses to go and free his firstborn son the nation of Israel um, in order for them to go out and worship him so we know that Moses Moses on over to Egypt and the Pharaoh is very resistant to let his slaves go and We see that God um, Sends the plagues upon the Egyptians And so how are we called to read the plagues? Um, if you look closely each plague can correspond to one of the gods of egypt just a few examples Um, you know one of the plagues is the nile turning to blood well Hopi was the nile god Um, one of the plagues is this uh just overabundance of frogs okay well one of the egyptians got egyptian goddesses was Hecate, and she's a fertility goddess so what is this saying it seems like the plague should be viewed as kind of a battle of the gods the god of moses and the people of israel is kind of dethroning these things that the egyptians viewed as divine these egyptian gods they are rendered powerless um It's really, really interesting um, things to study and look into. Of course, the last plague, um, the death of the firstborn, the Pharaoh himself was seen as a god, and so it affects him, right? His son, his heir, is taken away. And we know that this is where we get the Jewish festival of the Passover, Um, There's so many beautiful Eucharistic images um, that come from the Passover, but unfortunately, we just don't have enough time for that. So um, the Israelites are led out of Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea, and they are headed to Mount Sinai to make a covenant with God. And God says that um, Israel, his firstborn son, will be, Um, a royal priesthood. They will be a nation of kings and priests. So Israel as a nation, as a collective, they are God's firstborn son. They're kings and they're priests. See, there's this Adamic imagery coming back. Remember those five roles given to Adam within his covenantal relationship with God. So Israel is a new adam and the sign of israel's covenant is the ten commandments the ten commandments can be viewed almost as family laws within this covenant so israel is the form of the covenant israel as a nation the sign is the ten commandments but also um, there's this really interesting covenant ceremony that takes place on top of mount sinai So, the people have agreed to keep um, the Ten Commandments. So, that's, you know, remember there are conditions of the covenant. They agree to follow the Ten Commandments to be this nation of kings and priests. And so, um, this covenant sign ceremony, they sacrifice some animals and they take the blood of the sacrifices and they put half of the blood on the altar that they built. That symbolizes God's participation in this covenant and then the other half of the blood is put on the people and that's symbolizing their own participation in this covenant they're agreeing to keep the Ten Commandments and what does this mean remember there are curses involved with breaking the covenant and so what is the curse here basically the people are saying if I break this covenant, let my own blood be shed, because it's the blood of these animals that has made this covenant. Now the phrase blood of the covenant shouldn't sound new to any of us, because every time we go to Mass, we hear the words of consecration, and the priest quotes Jesus at the Last Supper saying, this is my blood of the new and eternal covenants. Quoting from Luke 22. The blood of the new and eternal covenant. Well, that implies that there is some blood of the old covenant. And that's what we read about in Exodus 24 with Moses and all of Israel. And we're looking forward to this day when it's not going to be the blood of animals that makes this covenant between God and the people, but God's own blood. The blood of Jesus makes the new and eternal covenant. So we know after this, um, Moses goes back up on to Mount Sinai um, and he receives instructions for building the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. And while he is up on the mountain, the Israelites get bored and antsy and they end up falling back into idolatrous worship, presumably like they were practicing when they were living with um, the Egyptians. And so this is the story of the golden calf. So remember, there are conditions for breaking this covenant, for breaking the Ten Commandments. So within um, the episode of the golden calf, we see that the Israelites have obviously broken the first commandment. They've committed idolatry. There's also clear um, undertones of sexual immorality Um, happening within the worship of the golden calf and so they have broken the commandment against adultery and so as a consequence more laws are given to the people and these are the laws that we find in the book of leviticus and the levitical laws can be seen as penitential so it sounds like the word penance So these laws are all about teaching the Israelites a lesson about sin. And the book is named Leviticus because the only tribe that does not fall into this worship of golden calf is the tribe of Levi. And so they um, retain the status of priest. And so they're going to be the ones that offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. Because as we saw earlier in scripture... The consequence of sin is death. And God accepts animals as this substitution for our sin. So in the book of Leviticus, we read about different offerings that can be given to God. Um, you know, a guilt offering, um, a whole burnt offering for reparation of sins. And so the book of Leviticus is all about laws that are going to teach uh, the people of Israel how to be in relationship with god how to live in god's presence um, and atone for their sins and so after a long stay at mount sinai um, the people prepare to go out into the wilderness and they are headed to the promised land and maybe i didn't emphasize this enough earlier but remember when i said that god promised to make of abram a great nation and so that requires a lot of people and land and so we have now seen the fulfillment of abraham's descendants being a great nation right there are a ton of people that are descendants from abraham all 12 tribes of israel But God also promised Abram a very particular piece of land, and that is the land of Canaan. And so that is the destination um, of the Israelites after Sinai. They're headed to the promised land, the land promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The only issue is that even though the people have the Ten Commandments and they have the Levitical laws, things still aren't perfect. And the people began rebelling against Moses and against God in the wilderness. We read about the wanderings in the desert in the book of Numbers. And so the people um, warrant on themselves the curse of not getting into the promised land. So the reason that the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years is not because um, the promised land was 40 years you know, journey away from Sinai, but because they keep breaking the covenant. And so it is the second generation of Israelites that are going to arrive on the plains of Moab right outside of the promised land at the end of the book of Numbers. And we see that just like their parents, they participate in this idolatrous, adulterous pagan worship Um, On the plains of Moab and therefore um, new laws are given as a result of the breaking of the covenant and these are the laws that we read about in the book of Deuteronomy and when I'm explaining this to my students, I like to give them the visual that Moses sits the people down and all of Deuteronomy is presented as this long speech from Moses And I like to compare it to when you are trying to potty train a dog in the house. And when they use the bathroom on the floor, what do you do but put the dog's face in it? And so essentially Moses sits the people down. He kind of rubs their face in the big sin that they just committed. And just like we could describe the laws in Leviticus as penitential, meant to teach a lesson, we can kind of categorize the laws found in Deuteronomy as concessionary. What does that mean? God recognizes the wickedness of the people of Israel. They cannot keep the law. They cannot stop breaking the Ten Commandments. They can't keep the Levitical laws. And so he concedes to their level of wickedness. A few weeks ago, the gospel um, reading was from Mark, but it's also present in Matthew chapter 19. And the Pharisees corner Jesus, and they're trying to trap him. And they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says something very profound. He says, Moses allowed for a man to issue a bill of divorce to his wife. Because of the hardness of the people's hearts, but from the beginning, it was not so. So let's look at that. Moses allows for divorce. Well, we see that in the book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus gives the reason for that. He says, because of the hardness of their hearts. What does it mean to have a hardened heart? Well, a hardened heart is a heart that is not open heart that cannot change maybe a cold heart and so there's obviously some issue going on with the israelites that their hearts cannot be open to a relationship with god so moses makes this allowance of divorce for them because the people are so wicked and jesus points out that from the beginning it was not so Well, obviously, Jesus is referencing, you know, the story of Adam and Eve. Um, You know, this is why a man leaves his father and mother's house and he is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. Um, That which God, you know, joins together, man cannot separate. Jesus goes on to quote Genesis. So. The laws in Deuteronomy are concessionary. Ezekiel describes them as a lesser good. The people have hardened hearts and therefore they cannot keep good laws and so Moses makes allowances for them. But at the end of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses reads to them the final form of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, You know, we have the final form of the law. We have the Ten Commandments. We have these national laws found in Exodus 21, 22, and 23. We have the laws of Leviticus and the laws of Deuteronomy. Um, He reads them the blessings that the Israelites will receive from keeping these laws and being in this covenantal relationship with God. But he also reads them the curses. And the most significant curse for breaking the mosaic covenant is that the people will go off into exile and moses knows the people of israel very very well by this point and he tells them that they will surely break the covenant he says when all these things come upon you the blessings and the curse when not if so he's telling them They're going to break the covenant and they will go off into exile, but that's not going to be the end of the story. The people will go off into exile. They'll be scattered. They'll be kicked out of the promised land, but they will look forward to a day when God will bring them back together and he will circumcise their hearts. This always gets a little bit of a giggle from my high school students, circumcision of the heart. Well, what does that mean? Obviously, we're not talking about a physical circumcision of the heart. But let's remember, how does Jesus describe the hearts of the Israelites? They have hardened hearts. What is going on in circumcision? Circumcision requires cutting. So what is this saying? The circumcision of the heart. We're looking forward to a day when God will cut the hardened hearts of the people of israel he will cut their hearts of stone and it is only after this circumcision of the heart that the people will be able to love god and live in perfect covenantal relationship with him and so that's how the first section of the old testament ends this coming day after the exile when God will circumcise the hearts of the people. And this is one of my favorite biblical themes. And it's picked up throughout the prophets and in the New Testament. And so, like I've said, we've already seen the fulfillment of the first promise given to Abraham. God has made of Abraham's descendants a great nation. got the nation of Israel and they're headed into the promised land. Okay, so now the Israelites are moving into the promised land Moses has died and appointed Joshua as his successor Um, so here is another place where people struggle um, to understand what's really going on in the Old Testament what is God doing with the Israelites Um, because they are going into the promised land and they will face a lot of battles with the people who are there, the people living in the land, the Canaanites. And I already mentioned that the Canaanites are known for their child sacrifice. They're also known for their sexual immorality. Um, and so the people are going to be engaged in battle with them. And they're called to, um, in some verses says, utterly destroy them. So these are some of those dark passages of scripture that people talk about. So how are we called to understand these passages in Scripture about the people going in and seemingly, you know, killing all of the Canaanites? Um, well, people take different views. A lot of people read it as hyperbolic language. Um, that the author of the book of Joshua is just using this extreme language to talk about these um you know, commands um, about the battle with the Canaanites. Because it also says in other places, you know, oh, we utterly destroy the Canaanites, but then there's a command not to marry the Canaanites. Well, how can you marry someone that you've utterly destroyed? Um, more is the idea maybe that the Israelites are not yet understanding God, that because their hearts are hardened, because of their wickedness they misunderstand god's command to them in regards to the canaanites there's a lot to say about um, these theories and others but i think first and foremost we really need to understand that the conquest of canaan is a liturgical battle that god is taking the active role while the israelites are taking this passive role and i think the battle of jericho one that most people are familiar with um, is the kind of perfect example of this so the battle of jericho there's this city um, joshua and some other spies have gone into the city they stay with the woman rahab who um, recognizes the god of israel as the true god um, and ends up converting and so her and her family find um protection from you know the ultimate destruction of the city but anyway so spies go in they go back and god commands the people to take the ark of the covenant the ark of the covenant of course being um the golden box carried with poles where God's presence comes to dwell with the people in that form of that glory cloud of smoke called the Shekinah. So the people of Israel are called to follow the Ark of the Covenant in this march around the city. Um, Seven times they march around the city. And on the seventh time, um, the Israelites are commanded to um, below the trumpets the trumpets were kind of this like liturgical instrument and the walls of jericho come down and so god takes the obviously active role of bringing about victory for the israelites where the israelites take this passive role where they're following god's Um, instructions God's command and the people of Jericho and the Canaanites at large have this opportunity to encounter God to repent um, from you know their practices of child sacrifice and their immoral behavior just like Rahab and her family and so we really need to read the book of Joshua um, through the lens of this kind of liturgical warfare that the Israelites are to remain separate from the Canaanites in order to preserve them from this immorality to ensure that the Israelites can be a priestly people who can show other nations um, the love of God. <clears throat> okay, so after the people um, defeat the Canaanites and they settle in The promised land after Joshua's death there are this series of judges these are the leaders that we hear about in the book of judges and there's a lot of interesting and almost funny stories that go along with the judges but they are these military political leaders um, that are not always the most moral people but God still brings about some victory Um, through them but ultimately we see this kind of cycle of sin and chaos that the people of Israel find themselves in and so at the end of the book there's this repeated line of at that time there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes essentially it's this message that Israel wants a king they see that having a king like all the other nations would be the solution to their problems. And so they demand this from Samuel, the last judge of Israel. And so Samuel anoints Saul. And Saul looks like a king from the other nations. It says that basically Saul was chosen because he was a foot taller than the other Israelites and he was good-looking. It's qualifications for the Israelites to be king, tall and good-looking. He's from the tribe of Benjamin and Saul makes some pretty critical mistakes. Um, Saul puts his uh, popularity um, with the people over worship of God. He offers um, improper sacrifice. Saul's not a priest And ultimately, the kingdom is taken away from him. Um, And by this time, Samuel has already set out to find a new king. And so he anoints one of the sons of Jesse, a shepherd boy named David. David is described as not the strongest, not the tallest, not the most handsome, but a man after God's own heart. And so, after a series of Um, dramatic episodes between David and Saul where Saul plots to kill David um, but David still has this respect and reverence for Saul. Um, Saul eventually um, kills himself essentially in battle and David assumes the throne and um, David is Uh, made king of israel and rules over all 12 tribes the 12 tribes actually describe david as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh they make a covenant with him so david takes this bridegroom role david is king david is a prophet we know that he writes the psalms he speaks on behalf of god David is a priest. We see him wearing the priestly ephod as he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So David is a priest, a prophet, king. Okay, we know maybe where this is going. Um, so his first move as king is to establish Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. And his second act is... Asking is to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city. So, what does this say? This says that unlike Saul, David is going to put proper worship of God at the center of Israel. The center of his kingdom is going to be God. Um, and in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God sends the prophet Nathan. Um, to tell him that although David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem um, with the hopes of being the one to build a permanent temple as a place to worship God, Nathan tells him on behalf of God that um, instead of David building a house for the Lord, a temple for the Lord, God is going to make a house of David. God is going to promise David a dynasty And this is the Davidic covenant text in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises David that he's going to make him a house, a dynasty. He's going to raise up his offspring. And his offspring, David's son, is going to be God's son. And he will reign on the throne forever. So... We see the fulfillment of that second promise to Abraham, right? Great name. I told you that great name implies royalty. David is a king. David's in Abraham's line. And we see these other promises attached to this covenant. So David's son is going to be God's son. He's going to reign on the throne forever, and he will be the one to build the temple for the Lord. And we know um, that in Psalm chapter 8, uh, I believe it's Psalm 8, yes, that idea of David's son will be God's son. That sonship is also extended to David. So now David is a priest, a prophet, bridegroom, a king, and a son of God. David is a new adam figure okay and um, david's son solomon builds the temple and i already told you the temple is built on the site of the almost sacrifice of isaac Um, and it becomes the most important place in all of israel and so the sign of the covenant with david is that temple And the form of the covenant is that God's family becomes this royal dynasty, and so things are great. David serves as this powerful um, political leader, but also um, a reformer of worship. Um, And then things go kind of downhill. We see Solomon. Solomon has this gift of wisdom, but Solomon, um, his heart is brought away from god he marries for political ties he begins worshiping the gods of his many many wives he begins burdening the people with heavy taxes and so solomon's son ascends the throne and the people of israel you know beg and plead you know, don't be like solomon don't be like your father and in turn solomon's son actually increases taxes, burdens the people even more, and the kingdom ends up splitting. And so um, the kingdom splits into the house of Israel. You could say it's the northern ten tribes of Israel. They break off. The northern kingdom, they appoint their own series of wicked kings. And the southern kingdom, the house of Judah, which essentially... um, has the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin that kind of just kind of gets absorbed into uh, the tribe of Judah and so the Davidic king reigns in the south in the southern kingdom and these wicked kings in the north but the Davidic kings aren't typically much better than the northern kings and so um, there's this whole time period of just corruption within the kingdoms they worship false gods and eventually in the year 722 BC the Assyrians come and they take the northern kingdom off into exile it's the first time we see that fulfillment of the curse of breaking the Mosaic covenant remember Moses says when these things come upon you the blessing and the curse you're gonna go off into exile So we see the northern kingdom is taken off. In 587, 586 BC, we see that the Babylonians come and do the same to the Southern Kingdom. They go in, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, the Davidic king is taken off into exile. Um, and it seems like you know hope is lost because there's no Davidic king, there's no son of David on the throne, but God made this promise that there would be one son of David whose throne will be established forever, His kingdom will be established forever. And so um, after a time when the Persians come in and conquer Babylon, King Cyrus allows the southern tribes to go back into the promised land. But things are not the same. And so, leading up to the time of the exile, prophets came on the scene. They warned the people about their wickedness. Um, you know, someone like Amos warns the people about their sexual immorality, warns the people about the ways in which they do not um, care for the poor. They don't follow the laws in Exodus, They don't follow the... Ten Commandments, Um, and so the prophets are treated very harshly. Many of them are killed, Um, and so eventually um, some of the prophets begin prophesying about how there will be a son of David that's going to come, and he's going to save the people. Um, I'm just going to highlight a few prophecies. Um, Isaiah prophesies that A virgin or young woman will bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Um, Jeremiah chapter 31, God declares that he's going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And he actually says that it's not going to be a covenant like the covenant that their fathers broke, meaning the Mosaic Covenant. It's going to be a covenant not written on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of the people. Well, let's think about this in light of that theme of circumcision of the heart. How can the law be written on tablets? Well, it has to be cut into the tablets. So the law of the covenant is going to be written on the hearts of the people. It's going to be cut into the hearts of the people. In this new covenant, we're going to see that circumcision of the heart. And even further than that, the prophet Ezekiel talks about how the Israelites are like a flock of sheep. And he is going to appoint his servant David as a shepherd over them and make a covenant with them, a covenant of peace. So just like Jeremiah talked about a new covenant, Ezekiel talks about a new covenant. And Ezekiel goes on to say that God's going to gather all the people from all the nations in which they were scattered and he's going to bring them back into the land and he's going to sprinkle clean water upon them and give them new hearts. So when is this um, problem of Israel's hearts going to be fixed? When is that circumcision of the heart going to take place? What's going to take place in the context of a new covenant where the law is going to be written on the hearts of the people when clean water will be sprinkled upon them. So we already see that baptism is going to be the time of this circumcision of the heart. That baptism is going to be this new circumcision. And St. Paul really picks this up. And just as an aside, in Acts chapter 2, when... Um, the people are accusing the apostles of being drunk after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. St. Peter gets up and he gives message of the gospel to the people. And it says they were cut to the heart. And they say, what now must we do? And he says, you must be baptized. Baptism tied together with this cutting of the heart, right? The circumcision of the heart. Very, very beautiful. And so Ezekiel ends his prophecies with a future temple. It's going to have a river flowing from its side, bringing life to everything around it. So remember, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It ends up being rebuilt, right? We know Jesus goes into the temple, Herod adds on to that rebuilt temple, but ultimately, In 70 AD, that temple is destroyed. So if we're looking at the promises that God gives to David in the Davidic covenant, we see that there's going to be one son of David who can reign on the throne forever, who's going to build the temple for God. And so if we're going to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, let's look at what Jesus has to say about the temple. Doesn't seem like Jesus really focuses on the physical temple in Jerusalem. What does he say? You know, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, he's talking about his body, his body as the true temple. And what do we see about Jesus' body as the temple on the cross? Right? He's stabbed, and blood and water flow from the side of Jesus on the cross. Well, that's beautiful in light of Ezekiel's prophecy, right? A future temple the river that will flow out from its side, bringing life to everyone. We see the birth of the church from the side of Jesus. That river of water and blood flows out from the true temple of Jesus' body. So, the Old Testament ends, right, I've gotten a little bit ahead, bringing in some of this imagery of Jesus, right, as fulfillment um, of these prophecies, but the Old Testament ends with Israel, at least... Those from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, later they're just called Jews, right? Judah, Jew. They're back in the promised land with their second temple and they're awaiting the fulfillment of all these prophecies. They're waiting for the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ, meaning anointed one. I like to tell my students that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It means anointed one. So the people of Israel are waiting for an anointed one, a son of David, who will come back and rule over them. And we see that um, the Jews do not enjoy freedom in the land. They're ruled over by the Persians, and then the Greeks come. And we see this influence of Greek culture on the Jews. If you read things like the Book of Wisdom, It's obvious that Greek philosophy and Greek culture has crept in. You see this marrying of Greek philosophy with the theology of the Jews, which is very providential. Um, And this kind of sheds light on things like the prologue of John and some of the work of Paul, where we see a fuller understanding of God comes when you look at the revelation given to the Jews and the philosophy of people like Aristotle and Plato in the Greek tradition. Um, and so the Greeks are ruling over the people, the people are growing in understanding of God. And then um, for a short period of time, there seems to be freedom for the Jews in the land because um, Antiochus the One of the rulers is overthrown in the Maccabean revolt first and second Maccabees Um, we read about how uh, Judah Maccabee and his family um, end up fighting for their independence um, because there is this desecration of the temple this wicked ruler Antiochus restricts the religious freedom he offers his unholy sacrifice in the temple and there's this great military victory Um, For the Maccabees and so that's where we get uh, the story of Hanukkah and Historically, this is putting us about a hundred and sixty ish years before the birth of Christ and So they experience a little bit of freedom, but we know ultimately that Even the descendants of the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, which Herod is in the line of the Hasmoneans, they ultimately have to answer to the Roman Empire. Um, The people are still going to be waiting for this Davidic king, a son of David, to reclaim the throne. um, So they don't have to answer to the Romans Um, And they're waiting still on a fulfillment to that last promise of Abraham. Because Israel has become a great nation. They've kind of dwindled down a bit, obviously, after the exile. But they became a great nation with all 12 tribes of Israel. And they had a great name because kings were in their line. David is kind of the um, exemplar of the fulfillment of the second promise to Abraham. But there has not been a dis- one descendant of Abraham that has brought blessing to all humanity. And so we're still waiting to see how God is going to fulfill that promise. And we know that the New Testament authors have all this in mind because, you know, it's so beautiful that the church has done this. The New Testament starts out with this line from Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So while the Old Testament ends with um, the people in expectation of this fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, this fulfillment of the promises given to David in his covenant, and the fulfillment of these prophecies about a new covenant that will be written on the hearts of the people, we see Jesus come on the scene, as in the genealogy of David and Abraham, a son of David, a son of Abraham, and so. Father simply he's going to talk about, um, you know, Jesus and the Bible and how we understand the Gospels and all of that. And there's just so much to say, so I'm gonna kind of end here with my conversation on salvation history. And so I hope that this sheds light on that first question, you know, why does God seem different in the Old Testament? Well, now that you have more of an understanding of what God was doing, you can see that God is really taking the people of Israel by the hand like a child and Helping them grow in their understanding of who they are and who he is and how their relationship is supposed to be. And he's preparing them for, just like the Catechism says, preparing them for the fullness of his revelation in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to be this model of holiness, but he's also going to open up um, You know, grace for us that's going to be the solution to that problem of original sin, right? This ruptured relationship. So, hopefully I helped answer that first question, you know, what's up with God in the Old Testament? How are we, um, you know, supposed to understand, you know, God seemingly being different? God's really not different in the Old Testament. And I will say this. Um, You know, one of the questions I get is, you know, it seems like God's justice is emphasized more than his mercy. But, I mean, I didn't get to talk about it all that much, but we see the Israelites being so wicked. We see someone like David who, you know, is a man after God's own heart, but David has these great victories and triumphs in the spiritual life, but also these failures, you know, um, lusting after Bathsheba and having Bathsheba's, husband killed in battle. I mean, David has to answer for his sins and God is just with him um, and he receives punishment, but God is also so merciful with him. He still brings about such good for the people working through David and that should give us hope and comfort in our own lives because we have a tendency to be wicked, right? We have concupiscence, this tendency to sin, and God still desires to work with us in times of great spiritual triumph, but also in times of failure. So God's mercy is very, very prevalent in the Old Testament um, as well as in the New. Okay, so in light of this, how you know, would I recommend you approach the Bible? How can we read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament? I would never recommend reading the Old Testament from the beginning. You're going to get lost. Um, You know, Father talked about having to identify certain things about Scripture, you know, the genre, the historical context. I mean, without knowledge of that, you're really going to struggle getting through the Old Testament. So I would recommend getting a study Bible, um, the Catholic Study Bible by Scott Hahn and Curtis Mitch, um, they have an entire New Testament study Bible bound together um, Which is phenomenal. I I would recommend everyone buy it, um, but they also have the individual books of the Old Testament um, In the like study Bible versions, so I would highly recommend you getting those um, any kind of Catholic study Bible with footnotes is going to really help you understand um, things a little bit more um, maybe starting with the Gospel of John Um, in a study Bible where you can use the footnotes to see the connections between the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's really a great place to start. The Gospel of John is so beautiful. It's, um, you know, the images of the Gospel, John is um, portrayed as the eagle because he soars above, you know, the other Gospels. There's just... So many spiritual mysteries talked about in beautiful John in the Gospel of John. So beautiful, um, and there's so many good books that I could recommend. Um, Bible Basics for Catholics is a great place to start if you are trying to understand Scripture. Um, Doctor John Bergsma uses stick figures and fun drawings um, to help you, you know, remember the things going on in Scripture, and he goes through all the covenants and really simplifies everything. Um, but still does such a good job of giving you kind of the genre and historical context. Um, A similar book to that would be A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Scott Hahn goes through the covenants. Like I said, covenants are key to understanding scripture. Um, Scott Hahn writes a number of great books. uh, Lamb's Supper, you understand um, the mass in a deeper way when you look at um, mass through the lens of scripture. Um, Brent Petrie has a number of great books, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Um, all of these books can really help you understand scripture a lot better. Um, and then within the lectionary of the church, so the church very intentionally puts certain readings together. Um, you know, it's more clear on some days than the others, but when you read through the first reading the responsorial psalm the second reading and the gospel ideally these would all be um carrying some similar theme um that they would illuminate one another you know the relationship between um the old and new testament laid out in the catechism is that the new testament is hidden in the old and the old is made manifest in the new and so within the lecture of the church you really see that kind of come to life um, and so maybe you know if you're trying to grow in your knowledge and love of scripture a great place to start would be um, getting to mass a little bit early opening up the Missal, and reflecting on how the readings go together um, and along those lines, praying with the Old Testament. That was the last question I said that I would answer. How can we pray with the Old Testament? Um, pray with the lectionary. Pray with um, the readings for the Mass. Um, ask God to help um, enlighten you on the meaning of the Scriptures. You know, Read the Scripture within the light in which it was written. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide your interpretation and understanding of Scripture. Um, you can also pray with the Liturgy of the Hours. That's um, also called the Divine Office. Is the prayer of the church. All those um, men and women who are in the religious life are required to pray the Liturgy of the Hours. So at certain times of the day, this follows Jewish tradition, um, they pray with scripture, um, m- most of which is a reflection on the Psalms. And I think it might be Thomas Aquinas that talks about how the Psalms um, basically show the gospel in a hidden way, that all the gospel is contained in the Psalms. And so we reflect on scripture in this prayerful way in the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, another great um, prayer tool for scripture is Lectio Divina. It's um, spiritual reading. So essentially in Lectio Divina, you would open up the text, and you would um, read it once slowly, meditating upon the words of scripture and asking God to help you um, come to know him and love him better within that text. You're looking for some kind of message that God may have for you while you reflect on the text. And then you would contemplate um, that message, whatever it is that stuck out to you in the text. Um, and something that I find really helpful in my own prayer life, and I kind of touched on this earlier, is spend time reading and researching the lives of some of the Old Testament figures. Um, people like Hannah and David. Hannah is the mother of Samuel. Hannah was unable to have children. and She goes into the temple and she prays um, for a son and she praises a beautiful prayer of um, praise and thanksgiving after her you know wish is granted after she conceives Samuel um, and that prayer is actually um, you could almost see it as a type of Mary's Magnificat um, the words are so parallel I make my students you know look at both the text from first Samuel and the text from uh, Luke chapter 1 and I, I have them compare contrast them. What are they talking about? Both Hannah and Mary um, show us how in times of pray or in times of Thanksgiving, how we can pray to God for those things. Um, and also David, David's probably my favorite biblical figure. David is so relatable. To us, that we can look at the Psalms of David, where he's, you know, crying out, he feels abandoned by God, he's in desolation, but also how he views his suffering, um, how he understands God's love for him, it's very, very helpful. And so, you know, that's kind of my advice that we can grow in understanding of Scripture and grow in love of Scripture by meditating on certain. Um, important figures within Scripture. Um, so I hope you enjoy this. I hope that um, this has, you know, helped you understand the Bible a little bit more. Um, while, while subtly mentioned, you know, there's so many tools that we can use to understand Scripture and how we really need to read it carefully within. You know the living tradition of the church and use the analogy of faith and understand genre and all of that. We don't need to be intimidated by scripture um, because God really desires to speak to us through the pages of scripture. Um, And so we need to be aware of how to read it well, um, but armed with some of the things that I gave you. These books and biblical commentaries and study Bibles and things like that. Um, We really can dive into the mystery of our faith um, by meditating on the words of Scripture.